Support for Paradox comes from the Timothy Center, your online counseling center no matter where you live. The Timothy Center is a marriage and family counseling facility in Austin, Texas, offering distance consultations for those that live outside the Austin area. If you have questions and you'd like to consult with Jimmy, Josh, or one of their licensed professionals, visit them at timothycenter.com. Recording live from Austin, Texas, a conversation about marriage and family that women will love and guys won't want to turn off. Dr. Jimmy Myers and Dr. Josh Myers are a paradox. Guys, welcome to the show. This is Paradox. I'm Josh. I'm Jimmy. And we are so excited to have Kay Warren today. Kay, thank you for being on. No, oh, I really appreciate the opportunity. Kay, thank you so much. And one thing right before we get started. Well, no, go ahead and say her. Yeah, her exactly. The most important part, Jimbo. Go ahead. Uh, Kay is an author, a speaker. Uh, she is a mental illness, HIV, and orphan advocate. She's also co-founder with her husband, Rick, of Saddleback Church there in California. And most importantly, she is a mom and a Grammy. And a Grammy. <laughs> hey, every time you have a, ch- a grandchild born, they won a Grammy. So, I mean, they're like, <laughs> they're winners right out of the bat. It's fantastic. That's what I say. Now, before we do get started... And I think this is probably a question on everyone's mind that's listening. How often at home, when it's just you and Rick, do you get in trouble or you're scolded because your life just does not have enough purpose? <laughs> do you, does he ever point uh, no. that out? Oh, yeah. We wake up every morning. He rolls over and said, do you know your purpose today? <laughs> you know what your purpose. Come on. I've gotten used to it, though. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. Very nice. So your latest book um, is, is entitled Sacred Privilege. Tell us about that. Well, I grew up in a pastor's home. I married a pastor, so I don't really know what a normal family is like. All I know is a ministry home. And um, because of that, I think it's given me a a vast experience at knowing what it's like for people living in ministry. Mm -hmm. And my dad pastored small churches um, in a pretty fundamental um, branch of Christianity when I was growing up. And Saddleback has grown into this very large church that is um, um, a much more wide open space, I suppose, if you will, although... You know, we're very conservative theologically, but just the whole approach to church and ministry and relationship with God is is different. And so I feel like I can relate to people at all different levels, those who are just starting out, those who are in the middle. And then, you know, at 63, we're, we're in that stage of life in which, you know, the there's more behind us than is ahead of us. Mm-hmm. And so um, I wanted to talk to, to pastor's wives all along the journey, every stage along the journey. And maybe spare them some of the mistakes that I made, Um, you know, the places I'd like to have some do-overs, maybe help set them up right for um, getting, because the the goal is I want to finish well. So I figure everybody else who's in ministry wants to finish well too. So what does it take to live your life all along the way so that you finish well? That was my goal. And how, you know, you, you spoke in the book regarding lessons learned and how you became kind of Team Rick. Um, describe that for us. Well, that was a bit of a process, even though we did start the church together. I mean, we started it in our home. When I say it was a process, he was so confident, self-assured, knew how God had gifted him. He was already um, a, a successful preacher. He started preaching in churches when he was only 16. 
and was a dynamic preacher. So he had already hit a modicum of success before we even got married. And I was much more shy and introverted and less uh, secure in who I was, less um, sense of adequacy in my identity. And um, so, yes, though we started together, uh, it, the process of growing in that confidence took, took time. But because we started in our home, we just split the job in half. You know, he did the preaching and teaching. I was the, the, I played the piano. I ran the nursery. I was the church secretary. I was the admin. Um, You know, whatever he didn't do, I did. And we just, we just did the job together from day one. And through the years, through the decades, actually now 37, um, Easter will be our 38th Easter at Saddleback. Um, We, we both grew to the places where we did the things that we love the most, the things that were really shaped and gifted to do. So I discovered I had a teaching gift and began to to teach and lead. And um, I have a heart for advocacy for vulnerable people. And um, he is, of course, this amazing uh, preacher, pastor, leader. And we've just done it together. All through the years, it's been a shared ministry. Now, you spoke also in your book regarding the importance of boundaries, uh, specifically for pastors' wives, but obviously that can uh, apply to anybody and everybody. You know, speak to for a second, just how do we recognize the need for them and, and then graciously and firmly communicate them? Well, people typically in churches love the pastor and the pastor's family and want to be close to them, especially in smaller churches where your your lives bump up against each other more consistently than they do in a larger church. But nevertheless, people want to be close. And um, you kind of have to figure out how do you have a private life um, while you're still living in the public eye? And that doesn't really change from whether you're in a small or a medium or a large church. You're you're in the public eye. You know, we always talk about living in the glass house, you know, or the fishbowl. And um, there are plenty of times I felt like a little goldfish, you know, swimming around in a in a bowl with all these eyes, um, you know, pressed up against the glass watching us. And um, we just learned, I think, probably since we both grew up in pastors' families, we learned the importance early on of shutting the door. You know, there were times it's just us. It's just our family. It's just us together to, to be as a family. And, um, and then there are other times kind of those, those doors swing open and your, your life is open and, um, people we're, we've just gotten used to the fact that we can't even go to the grocery store without somebody analyzing what we're buying. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had people stand there in the grocery store line and say, should Pastor Rick be eating that ice cream? And you just want to go, <laughs> I'm going to kill him for talking about dieting from the pulpit because it gives people permission to analyze the contents of my grocery cart. Um, you know, it's just, it's just the way it is. You, you have to learn how to accept that and you have to learn how to accept it gracefully, not resent it. Cause most people aren't trying to be nosy. They're not trying to get in your business or get in your face. They, they just, you're an object of interest yep. and, um, we just try to be graceful about it, but then have lots of times when it's just us. Now, was there a time, I remember speaking of boundaries, E.V. Hill once said, you know, if someone dies, they'll just, they'll be just as dead come morning. So don't be calling me at home. Uh, you know, he, he, <laughs> I love E.V. Hill. He, he threw a boundary. <laughs> he was a funny guy. Uh, no, when, that's, there's great. That's hard for pastors in small churches. Oh my Lord, yes. But, but it's a really, but it's a wise, it's a wise word. When, especially when you guys were young, and I know that a lot of young pastors fall into this, 
because if they choose to go do something and spend 70 hours uh, doing ministry as opposed to being at home with the family, it's always, well, I'm doing God's work. I mean, how are you going to say that's a bad thing to do? Did Speaking of boundaries, did you ever have to help rein Rick in? Yeah, but it, it works kind of both ways because we're both, uh, we can both be workaholics, just we just have a different way of doing it, but we've both had to speak that truth to each other through these years of, um, yeah, I know you've said this is a season, but it this season is stretching into a pattern. And anytime um, short-term things stretch into patterns, it's time to address it. Because before you know it, you've got a whole way of life going. You never intended that. You never intended to be that busy. You never intended to, you know, put your family um, way down the list of priorities. So it's we've we've figured out how to, and it's never a good conversation. <laughs> it's never. Um, it, it's always got some pain involved because I don't think either of us ever want to see it. You know, really, um, because I think we've we've sort of talked ourselves into thinking, oh, it's this season is going to end in just yeah. another month. Really, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change. It's going to change. And, and the guilt that you feel, but you don't want to feel it. So you get defensive, you know, when, when your husband or your wife calls you on it. But we've just had to do it over and over with each other um, to remind each other of, no, remember, remember what it is that we're really committed to. We are committed to growing a strong marriage. We're committed to growing a strong family. And we can't do that if we're not here. So painful conversations, but necessary. And how did you guys as a couple kind of work through that defensiveness? I know it's so hard to have tough conversations. So a lot of couples just don't have them and decades end end up miles apart emotionally. How did you guys force yourself to have not only those conversations, but also deal with the defensiveness? Well, the force ourselves to have the conversation part, I think, has come from um, an intentionality, as I said in the beginning, to finish well. I want to finish well in my marriage. I want to finish well as a parent. I want to finish well as a minister. I want to finish well in life. And um, to do so means you, you have to keep the end in mind. And every day, it's so much more, it's tempting to just get caught in, you know, the tyranny of the urgent. Um, this is what's on my plate today, and somebody's waiting on this deadline, and I've got to get this done today. But but in the long run, it's um, it's working against the goal that I really have for my life, which is to finish well, to love my husband well, to love my children well, to love my church well, to love my friends well. And um, so I think a, a process of maturing and um, uh, learning over and over and over again of what it is I really want and holding that out in front of me. Mm. The defensiveness, <laughs> um, <laughs> that one's harder. Sure. Because it just is. Um, nobody ever wants to be. Nobody ever wants to be. Um, I don't know. Here, here's the way I would say it. I, I've been I've been reading Matthew seven a lot lately. I mean, for like six months, I read it almost every day. The first for, uh, first few 
first few verses about don't judge other people or you will be judged. The same measure that you use to judge other people is going to be used against you. And then it goes into that part where, where Jesus says, um, you know, how, how dare you get all upset at your neighbor who's got a little bit of sawdust, you know, in his eye and you've got a plank in your eye. Mm-hmm. And just recently when I was reading that, I had this visual in my head of a two by four sticking out of my eye. Mm-hmm. And, and I was trying to figure, yeah, but still, how does that hurt somebody else? Well, if you visualize a plank in your eye, literally a two by four, every time you turn your head, you're whacking somebody sure. with the two by four that's <laughs> in your eye. But, but you don't even know it because you're so blind. You don't sure. even realize that even every time you move your head, you're whacking somebody. And, and I feel like the, that God gave me that picture to take down my defensiveness because I'm blind to my own blindness. I don't realize that the two by four in my eye is hurting everybody else. And my prayer is, God, please, rem- don't, I don't want to be blind about my blindness. And so when Rick brings up a sensitive subject or when he calls me on the carpet on something or he brings to my attention a place where I'm not living out what I've said that I wanted or that were my values, I realize I've got that plank. I'm blind and I don't know it. And those are the moments to be able to say, God, I've asked you to remove my blindness. I've asked you that I would not be blind to my blindness. Obviously, here's a moment where I'm blind. Okay. And so there's, there's a surrender both to God and a surrender to the truth that coming from somebody who loves me. Absolutely. It stinks. It's hard. I hate it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you also spoke in your, your book regarding an emotional attachment with a coworker early in your marriage. And again, this is for pastor's wives, but absolutely uh, most of this, if not all of this book, certainly applies to all of us. Um, but how did you guys work towards safeguarding your marriage? We've been incredibly intentional. Some people would probably think we've gone overboard, but uh, Rick took a page from Billy Graham's um, modus operandi early in our ministry, which was he would not, he has never been alone in a room with a woman um, other than me. So he doesn't ride an elevator, you know, at church. He doesn't get in a car. He doesn't let a female coworker give him a ride anywhere. If he saw a, some, a woman on the side of the road who needed help, he would call someone else. And then be, he's just, he doesn't stay in a hotel room by himself. Um, he has just put incredible um, fences around himself to because we recognize that that Satan always goes after the same places in all of us. It's money, sex, power, money, sex, power. Those are the big three. They're going to take you down if you're not careful. And we've just determined that we're not going to be one of those statistics. We went to Bible college and seminary with so many good-hearted, gifted people who have have gotten um, messed up along the way with money, sex, or power. And we're just we've just determined we're not going to be a statistic. And I'm I'm the same. I follow those same guidelines. And um, does that protect you a hundred percent? Of course not. I mean, you know, you you can't rely on on those things, those external things. There's the heart, and there's the the um, yeah, where your heart is and where your emotions are. But but we've put in place externals, and they remind us to focus then also on the internal of keeping our heart turned toward each other. And we'd be unrealistic if we didn't say there weren't moments we 
are attracted to somebody else. I mean, we're human. There's good grief. We're it's the way we're wired. It's nothing weird or strange. It's just what do you do with it? And um, we've made the intentional decision over and over and over and over and over again to turn any attraction to someone else um, to back to each other. That's re- oh my lord. For uh, young ministers' families to hear that, for all families to hear that, the importance of boundaries. I've been blessed because I don't think uh, any woman will be in a room with me alone. So <laughs> I think it's almost working. God's convicted oh. like every woman I've ever met. So real you quickly. Know, I can't even go there. That's so silly. <laughs> um, real quickly before we leave. I, I I remember in 2013 when I heard the news about your son uh, and passing away. And then I heard you guys speak about it. And I mean, I really, I can remember this day pulling into my garage and I, I was he- hearing Rick being interviewed. I, when I was in 20 years of church ministry, I... I heard of, of pastors whose you know, child committed suicide, and it was always they passed away. It was they didn't talk about it. And when you guys became so open about what happened, first off, it was so outside the norm that someone, for any pastor, much less one, a pastor and his wife, you guys who are so well-known, to be that transparent and vulnerable was a remarkable thing. And I hope you know how many people that that positively impacted. I think we have a sense of that. We were inundated with, um, you know, calls and texts and emails and cards and, uh, you know, just a, truly an outpouring of, of sympathy and compassion to us. Um yeah, I mean, and we're we're eternally grateful for us. I still meet people who will say, "I've been praying for you, you know, since you lost your son." And and I I don't ever take that for granted, and I don't toss that away lightly. It, it's meaningful to me, and I believe that we have um, survived largely because so many people have been kind to us and prayed for us and um, and lifted us to Jesus in in our darkest days. It, it's it's hard to put into words because the, the, it's the most devastating um, loss I can imagine. It was, you know, the worst day of my life has has already happened, and, and I it's changed us. We're not the same people that we were. Um, I know sometimes there have been people who have wanted us to be who we used to be. They want the old Rick and Kay back, and, and I've had to just say, well, well they're gone. Yeah. Um, they, they don't. They're not here anymore, um, but there's a new Rick and Kay, and we are, I hope, better. I hope we're more tender, more compassionate, more um, empathetic to the suffering of, um, of fellow human beings. I hope, we, I hope people see in us a deeper trust and faith in God. I hope that they see that we are okay with living with the mystery of the unanswered questions. I will never know why God didn't heal Matthew. Uh, I mean, I was, I went so far out on the faith limb. I was all in that God was going to heal Matthew here on earth. And, and that isn't what happened. And, um, I hope people see not just those, I hope they don't just see us as people who are authentic, 
but people who are willing to praise God in the face of um, anguish and mystery. Yes, I trust him more than I ever have. Easter means more than it ever has. If Jesus is alive, Matthew's alive, and I will be too. Okay, one thing, really quickly. Every family member that I have ever dealt with that has had the experience of a loved one committing suicide, there is, first of all, the, the questioning of we should have known, we should have seen, followed quickly by we then could have done something to prevent this. Therefore, an amazing soul-crushing amount of guilt. Did y'all experience that? And how did you, if you did, work through it? Yeah, guilt, guilt, a uh, crushing, as you said, a soul-crushing guilt accompanies suicide. It just, it, it comes. There, I don't know that there's any way around it. Um, because for all the reasons that, that you just said. And, and yet in our situation, Matthew had been talking about suicide since he was 12, and he died at 27. He talked about it almost every day, and we still couldn't prevent it. Um, and so that's one of the things I tell people, even, even if you had known your loved one's intentions, you might not have been able to stop it. And really at the end of the day, that's just the language of grief, the language of grief. It just says, Oh, I wish you were here. Oh, I miss you. And to understand that that grief is, um, is not legitimate. Uh, I mean, rarely is there somebody that isn't dearly loved by somebody else. So it's not a lack of love, you know, um, it's not a lack of love. It's not that this person wasn't loved well by somebody. Um, there's just a pain inside that they don't really want to die. Matthew said, I can't count the times he said, I don't really want to die. I just want the pain to stop. And so our search was not so much how to keep him alive, but how to reduce the pain that he experienced so that he could um, find an equilibrium to be able to live. Um, Yes, we felt that. Yes, it's real, that kind of grief, that kind of guilt. But I I have the opportunity now, almost daily, talking to um, the survivors, those who've lost someone, and to be able to say, I hear you, and that guilt is crushing, but you can let it go. At the same time, I would tell you guys, and you know this, that many people do give signs of that they are thinking of ending their lives, and others don't pick it up. Often we're afraid. We're afraid to ask the question, are you thinking of, of hurting yourself? Are you thinking of killing yourself? Because we're afraid that that's going to make them think about it. Yep. <laughs> and, and that's not true. Um, I, if anything, I would say, ask the question, ask them. But if you notice a change in somebody, somebody who's normally upbeat is, it has changed or somebody who's normally energetic is, is very, they can't get stuff done. You notice a change in somebody, be brave enough and loving enough to say, Hey, I've noticed you don't seem quite yourself these days. Are you okay? And then to be able to say when they, if they say no, are, are you thinking of, of killing yourself? Are you thinking of suicide? And if they say no, then you keep talking and say, well, man, I just, I really care about you. You matter to me. Or if they say yes, don't panic. That's the moment to say, well, I, I care about you. Can, can we get some help together? There's a suicide hotline, 1-800-273-TALK, T-A-L-K. There, um, you can call your doctor. You can w- go with them to the hospital ER if necessary. Don't leave them alone. But people are afraid to ask those questions. There are signs. For if teenagers, 
are, you know, if it lasts more than a few weeks of depression or irritability or change in their sleeping habit or change in their eating, start asking the questions. Be on alert. They're vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, about every 14 seconds, somebody in the United States does take their life. Tell you what, Kay Warren, you have now become one of my favorite human beings. <laughs> Gift of teaching. Are you kidding me? We, we need to n- knock Rick over and put you behind the pulpit. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. If you want more information, and I guarantee you do, uh, about Kay, you can visit her website at kwarren.com. On Facebook, you can find her at Kay Warren. Twitter is Kay Warren and the number one. And then Instagram is kwarren75. And go pick up her book, Sacred Privilege. You can find it Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any bookstore, website. Um, definitely pick that up. Kay, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thanks, you guys. It was really great to talk to you. You know, by the end of our Paradox show, whenever that might be, you might have one million favorite people. I know. But wasn't she good? She was fantastic. All right, a few things I picked up on. I loved her money, sex, and power. Mm-hmm. Money, sex, and power, money, sex, and power. If the, if the enemy's going to get you, it's money, sex, and power. She said we have to protect the externals or we have to use externals to protect the internals. I have a lot of parents that will call um, and their kids struggling with pornography. And I say, well, you need to get monitoring and blocking software. You need to make him or her accountable. And they're like, well, those are all behavioral stuff. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. And they're frustrated that we can't just magically make hearts change. But I do. (laughs) That's what I do, Josh. But at the end of the day, you know, internal change is... For those of you that can't magically make (laughs) hearts change, go ahead. ...is a product of the actual individual working towards that. But even if the individual doesn't want that, we can make external changes to protect the internal. Yep. Because we're always going to have a sinful heart. Yep, yep, yep. Don't be blind to your blindness. Finish well. We have to keep the end in mind. And if seasons turn into patterns... Yeah, (laughs) You know, I'm just really stressed right now. Business is stressful. It's just a pattern. It's, just, it's going it's to clear just a, up. It's just a season. Three years later. Yeah, it's just a season. Three years later. It's the NBA, which goes on <laughs> so long. You know, five years later, the season's still happening. And guys, we've got to uh, to talk through that when seasons become patterns. Have you ever wondered why the NBA is like 13 months long and the, NBA, uh, the NFL is like six weeks? Have you ever I'm wondered sure that? why that's pertinent? It just her discussion of boundaries. And, and not just within um, a ministry and not just the sexual boundaries. But, by the way, let's see. Christians that have impacted the 20th, 21st century. Billy Graham, Rick Warren. Okay. I, talking about a pattern. I see guys like that that are just setting up these extremely rigid boundaries. Apparently, God's honoring those kind of just really, really rigid boundaries. But not only that, but I loved her boundaries of, of hey, we got to shut the door. And I think, you know, one of the greatest lies that, that Satan ever tells is, well, this is for the ministry, so it takes precedent. And I don't know how many ministers, pastors, and their wives, you know, have led to divorce because everyone thinks they're doing God's will. And so establishing those boundaries is critically important. Guys, if you want more information, not only about Kay, but also this episode, her book, website, anything, it's ParadoxPodcast.com. Definitely check out her book, 
on all major book sellers selling places. website places. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, you go to our website, paradoxpodcast.net. You know com. Dot com. com. You know it. You know it. So more information about the show or any of our social media, paradoxpodcast.com. We thank you for listening today. Peace out. Bye-bye. Paradox is produced by Billy Lee Myers Jr. and researched by Dr. Jimmy and Dr. Josh Myers. For more information about our Paradox evangelist, Julie Lyles Carr, go to julielylescarr.com. If you want more details about what was discussed on today's show, go to paradoxpodcast.com. Next time on Paradox. Y'all would recognize a snowflake from some of these words. Have you ever been triggered? Uh, have you ever experienced a microaggression? <laughs> These are made up words by insane people.